0: this message was shared from the pulpit at good news baptist church in chesapeake virginia for more information visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org well, welcome to the course so our course title is troubled on every side contemporary theological issues now the title of this course i get it from second corinthians chapter 4 verses 8-9 through in that passage Paul is encouraging the church at Corinth to stay faithful even in the midst of trials, and that the same power of God that raised Jesus from the dead is available to them. It's available to us, and though we are troubled on every side, we are not distressed, we're perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not forsaken cast down but not destroyed so this is the first of 12 lectures maybe 13 that make up the second course of a larger series of classes that i teach called infallible proofs the first course was offered last year it was taught, titled evangelistic apologetics and i call this larger series infallible proofs because the courses are designed to provide you as a believer with tokens of evidence or criterion of certainty, points of reference for truth. I have whatever I gave. Sorry. So you should have received a course syllabus. Please only use this syllabus as a general guide. I will deviate from it. Hopefully not entirely, but according to the syllabus, you'll see that this specific course endeavors to isolate the most influential theological issues facing the church today. The very use of the term contemporary implies that the issues of today are not necessarily those that we have faced in the past, nor are they going to be necessarily the most important issues the church will face in the future these are not timeless issues in fact these are merely things threats to orthodoxy today the course will introduce each issue provide a general overview of the issue and then provide a biblical critique and response to these issues now lord willing this course will be separated into two parts and tonight's lecture is going to be introductory It'll be on how and why we think and know the things we think we know. Tonight, we'll we'll lay the foundation for how we develop, or how we should develop, beliefs about issues, how we stand on those issues, or the sides, if we want to call them sides, we take on certain issues. Then, the first half of the course will cover issues that are occurring within churches. Specifically, I'm talking about churches that would consider, we would consider like ours. These are conservative, Bible-believing, Baptist churches as a whole. Some, you might even be more comfortable calling them independent, fundamental Baptist churches at large. And Though I'm very aware that the baggage of the term IFB carries with it some things now. And we will discuss some of those things in the classes ahead. Some of these courses that we'll have this term will be the following. The wiles of the devil, spiritual warfare, and Satan's devices. I don't think we understand true spiritual warfare. We'll also be talking about a glorious church, the Pauline epistles, and the new perspective of Paul. And you might be thinking, there's a new one? Uh, What was the old one? Uh, and we'll talk about that, how there are those who are teaching now that Paul was not actually talking about salvation by grace alone, but there was works involved. We'll have, a course, or a lecture on perilous times, history and eschatology. Now, sometimes we seem to have an overly romantic view of the past, and often we have a disdain for our present. We talk about how horrible it is now and how good the good old days were. But we are going to talk about how maybe the good old days weren't actually so good, how the present isn't that bad, and how we have a wonderful future. And we don't have to be scared of it. We'll talk about that in that lecture. Then we'll move on to holy and without blemish, repentance, reconciliation, and restoration. And it's in that class that we will talk about some of the current issues of abuse that are occurring in churches that we know of like faith. Lecture six will serve as a transition lecture as we will move away from the dangers that we might find growing within our churches and start looking at attacks that would come from without or outside the church. You might even say that the first half deals with issues from the pulpit and the second half are issues from the pew. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I am not implying that we are preaching anything wrong from our pulpit. What I am saying is that the first half are issues that you might hear preachers preach, whether they be on the radio, whether they might be on TV, or maybe it's a church you visit, and then the second half are issues going on in the pew. And in this second half, we'll consider, toss to and fro, postmodern theological relativism. A lot of words there, but I think we can, we'll, we'll put some clarity to it. We'll talk about male and female created he, them, sexuality, gender, and marriage, Divisions among you. We're going to look at identity politics and the rise of critical theory and how politics are playing a pretty bad role in our churches today. We'll move to render under Caesar, discerning civic duty and civil disobedience. When is it time to disobey, and when is it time to just abide by the law? And then finally, we will conclude with, without natural affection, pro-choice, pro-birth, pro-life, how often many in our circles are very much pro-birth, but we say we're pro-life. In other words, we just want the babies to be born, but we don't take care of them or help those families after the baby is born. That's a touchy subject, and we'll look at that as we go along. Now, this course is going to be live-streamed. That brings certain challenges with it. And because of that, I want to make a couple commitments to you. First, I want to assure you that though some of our topics will be a little heavier than maybe you are accustomed to, I want you to be assured that families at home that would be watching this and listening to these with children present will have no issues. In fact, if you're having trouble getting your child to sleep, are you having trouble sleeping? Tune in. Just put the lectures on, point your toes towards heaven, you'll be out in minutes. Some of you are already there. In all seriousness though, I commit to you that we will maintain a high level of appropriateness throughout the course. We'll talk about some heavy issues, but you will find that I think it'll be an encouragement to you. Secondly, though we are live streamed, (laughs) I want to develop a classroom atmosphere in here even here in this auditorium. So if you have a question, raise your hand. We'll deal with it. Let's stop, and we'll work through whatever it is that's on your mind. This isn't a time for preaching. Though I admit, there's going to be some topics where I'm going to get very preachy. This is a time for teaching, and more importantly, for learning. Ask questions as soon as they come to your mind. Maybe give it a second or two. Think of it's a smart question. When I was a high, uh, junior high teacher, I told my 7th graders, there are such things as stupid questions. I won't tell you that, though, because you don't have any. If you have a question, please feel free to ask. This is a learning environment. It be on me to create that here. It would also help if we didn't spread out. We've done very well. This is great to be kind of close, up front. However, I'm aware you will place your personal comfort over the convenience of me. I know I would, so please sit where you're in the best position to learn, wherever you're most comfortable. Finally, don't hold me to the syllabus. We may find for the sake of time that we'll need to skip a topic to ensure we cover something more pressing. And even now, I'm losing time as I ramble. We may need to speed through tonight's lecture or spread it over two weeks because we're, we are going to get behind schedule. But we will move fast. I promise you that. In fact, I was talking to Ms. Fowler today, and I said, hey, are you interpreting? And she said, no way. She said, we didn't need it. And she says, I wouldn't do it if you paid me, I think was how she wrote that. Uh, I said, well, I was going to send you my notes, uh, so you, you'd have them. I hope I don't speak too fast, but we will move very, very quickly. I can promise you that. And while we may have to finish a lecture in a subsequent week, what we'll do is if we, have, if we don't get through it, we'll finish the next week, and we'll actually just move right on into the next lecture. But I will endeavor to get you out of here each evening by 8.15. That's the goal. And I'll also make sure you have a handout each week. Now, sometimes you'll have blanks on your handout that you could fill in. Other times you'll just have the notes to help you remind you of what was taught. Feel free to take notes. Feel free to just sit and listen. And absorb the material. In fact, if you're not going to take notes to review later and you plan to just throw the handout away, feel free not to take a handout. It's perfectly fine to just sit and listen. So let's dig in. But before we go any further, let's begin with prayer. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to study your word. Lord, I pray that we will be faithful and true to your word. Father, I don't stand up here as an authority on these topics. But, Father, we all can stand on the authority of the Word of God. And that's my goal, Lord, to help us return or turn our attention to the Word of God to see what it has to say, and then allow it to correct us. Father, I pray that when there's times when I will voice an opinion, I pray that I'll be clear and saying that that's my opinion. But Father, I pray that the Word of God will speak for itself, and I will not add to it nor take from it. Lord, I do want to pray for these requests that were mentioned tonight. There are so many that's on our list, but first, Father, I want to just praise you for Josh Haynes being cancer-free. Lord, I thank you for that. Lord, I pray that you would continue to guard His health, Lord. Lord by his own testimony. This past year has been a trial, but it has also, by his testimony, has been one that you have just spoken to him and, 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 and revealed yourself to him in special ways. And so I pray that you be with him and Esther, and especially as they also expect the birth of this little girl. I pray you continue to watch over them. Lord, I also am thankful for the teens that made decisions at our activity this past Saturday. Lord, I thank you for a youth director who has committed so much of his life to ministering to teenagers, and I thank you that my daughters get to be a part of that. I pray now that these teens who made decisions would be discipled. Lord, help them to grow. Lord, I also, we praise you for. Mrs. Trenton's ability to come home after being so long in the hospital to finally return her home, Lord, I pray that you would comfort her and keep her her health strong. Lord, we also thank you that the results of Mr. Hudgens' EKG came back, and they were good. I pray that you continue to watch over him. Lord, there are many requests that we bring up to you, Lord, I ask that you would continue to help those that are not feeling well, that they would get better. We think of Mrs. Davis and her ankle. I pray that it would heal soon and, and quickly and that and she'll get back to the mobility that she needs. And Lord, I just pray that you continue to watch over her. Lord, I pray for this uh, little baby from the, of the Gormans, our missionaries, to the military there in Colorado as Haven still struggles with gaining weight. I pray that you would touch the little body and, keep, and help her to grow into a healthy, healthy girl. Be with Tina's high blood pressure. I pray that that would get under control. Lord, I pray that you'd be with the Hurries. Bless them as they and so many are dealing with COVID. Lord, I pray that you would keep, keep him. Lord, I pray that you would help him through this. And Lord, I pray that, that you would use it to honor and glorify yourself in it. Lord, we do pray for the Noros who are looking for a ministry opportunity and position. I pray that you continue to watch over them. Give them wisdom, Lord. I pray that you would open doors as you see fit and in your time. Lord, I pray for Diane Rock, who has skin cancer surgery coming up, for Marty Rock, who has back surgery coming up, Lord. These who are, who are just need your divine care, Lord, I pray that you'd be with the doctors. Give them wisdom and use this time for them to continue to just praise you even in spite of the physical ailments that they are enduring. Lord, we do pray for the way guards there in Chuk. Lord, I pray that you would, if it be your will, give a final resolution to this legal situation. But Father, we also know that no final resolution has been for the last four years and, and yet you've chosen to keep them there and perhaps it's because You don't want this to be finalized just yet. And that's how you're keeping them there. We place it into your hands, Father, for your will to be done. And we'll praise you for it. Lord, I do pray for this class. I pray that it would honor and glorify you. Father, I pray that uh, what we say and what we do here would honor you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. This verse is found in Colossians 2.8. It also serves to give us the title for our opening lecture, Philosophy and Vain Deceit, Worldview and the Demise of Critical Thinking. In 2009 or 1961, Stan Lee and two other writers revolutionized superhero comics by introducing the first superhero team, known as the Fantastic Four. Now, in an effort to compete with DC Comics, Stan Lee broke with the conventional archetypes of the time and introduced superheroes that held grudges, both deep and petty. Rejected anonymity and secret identities in favor of celebrity status. The Fantastic Four was just the beginning of what became known as Marvel Comics. And what was to include household and superhero names like The Incredible Hulk, Iron Man, Spider-Man, and Captain America. In 2009, Disney acquired Marvel Comics and developed a $10 billion franchise that has become known as the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This universe, with interconnected films and television shows, offers insights into modern culture and establishes a viable universe of plot lines, characters, and backstories. The Marvel Cinematic Universe is an example of a world. It is a collection of attitudes, values, stories, and expectations that has gripped our culture's attention. But what is fascinating to me is that when we sit and watch movies and shows, we marvel, no pun intended, at how connected these movies and TV shows are. We call it cinematic genius. That there is this fictional universe so closely connected to the reality of our own where the actions and decisions of superheroes and villains in one movie will have repercussions, consequences, ramifications in some other movie or TV show That might not even be released until years later. DC Comics, Star Wars, Star Trek. These are other examples from contemporary culture where alternate worlds have literally been created from the genius of writers and producers. And we marvel at that genius and their ability to connect the vast collection of attitudes, values, stories. And expectations of their characters, these cultural icons have created a de facto world view. It's fictional, it's entertaining, but it is still an example of a worldview. Now, I only point out Marvel and DC Comics and Star Wars and Star Trek as examples of the interconnectedness of a worldview. I'm not condoning. I'm not condemning. Any of these. I'm not condoning or condemning cinematic science fiction, and we're not going to critique the worldview of Marvel Cinematic Universe tonight. I simply find it fascinating that I can be entertained by the incredible talent of writers to create an entirely connected, though fictional, universe. Yet I fail to appreciate how my worldview is just as connected and even more so, determines my words and actions in my world. As Christians, our world, the real world, not the ones of fiction, is interconnected. The quicker we realize this, the more effective we will be as salt and light in the world. As Christians, we have grown accustomed to thinking that our view of the world Has two very different and non convergent aspects. There's our religious perspective, and then there is our social perspective. There is a worldview that is influenced by what we believe and teach about God and His Word, and then there's this worldview that is influenced by what we believe and teach about the society in which we daily interact. We have separated our world view into our public view, our politics and our personal view, our religion. We have built our own walls of separation between the church in our lives and our lives in the state. We have confused Christianity with Americanism. We have mistaken politics for religion. We have traded spiritual revival For secular legislation, the church wants favorable government out there, leaving us content to exercise our faith in here. But the problem with this dualistic approach to worldview is that having two worldviews is a virtual impossibility. If you have a Christian worldview on Sunday, but a secular worldview on Monday, then you only have a secular worldview this is because if you had a christian worldview it would inform your practice and it would inform your practice that's making a secular worldview impossible and vice versa you cannot claim the bible is the sole guide for faith and practice i.e a christian worldview and then claim that you are the measure of all things i.e a secular worldview you cannot live for the temporal if you are living for the eternal A Christian worldview and a secular worldview are mutually exclusive. So in a nutshell, the purpose of this course is to shatter the dualistic approach to worldview and instead demonstrate the importance of a singularity of a worldview, a Christian worldview that is dictated by divine revelation, a worldview that permeates and governs every aspect of your life. It governs how we worship in the church on Sunday, and how we worship in the marketplace on Monday. It governs how we obey God in our families and how we obey God in the public square. It governs how we fulfill our civic duty to our nation on voting day and how we fulfill our great commission duty to the world every day. It governs how we glorify God by communing with him and how we glorify God by communing with our fellow man. In reality, a worldview that seeks to live out the greatest commandment, which is, love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. And love thy neighbor as thyself. At this point, before we go too much further, I think it would be helpful for us to define the general term worldview. What feeds it? How is it developed? As I've already alluded, there are really only two worldviews. Now, it would be helpful to consider that on one hand, there is a worldview illuminated by divine revelation, and on the other hand, there's a worldview defined by human revelation. Now, I'll explain this more in detail later, but from this point on, I will refer to this divinely revealed worldview as the Christian worldview, and all other worldviews as secular. Now, technically, there are other religious worldviews that are not actually, by definition, secular. But for the purpose of this course, we're not going to consider worldviews informed by Muslim, or Jewish, Or Hindu, or Buddhist, or any other faith. However, just because something is religious does not mean it has been divinely revealed. In fact, most religious worldviews succumb to the same inadequacies of a secular worldview. But we do not have the time to critique other religious worldviews. That would be a course in and of itself. Our world is becoming, though, increasingly secular now i'm using that word secular in the classical definition of the term as that which is only concerned for the present world as it moves through time it's how you understand the world here and now through your senses it is an emphasis on the worldly instead of the spiritual now, this temporal focus is distinguished from any consideration for the eternal. It's not that you're just, you are concerned about what goes on in the world around you. It's that you are only concerned with what goes on in the world around you, and it doesn't at all consider the eternal. That's the classical definition of secular. As a culture, we are moving away, and, and I think maybe even perhaps we have already completely moved from any consideration of the eternal perspective and are only focused on the here and now. A secular worldview is diametrically opposed to the biblical mandate for Christians to set their affections on things above and not on the things where? On the earth, below. As Christians, we should resist this humanist and unbiblical tendency, and the only effective way to do this is to remain grounded in Scripture. it's fundamentally important to realize that what you believe about the Scripture will determine your worldview. This is because everyone has a worldview. A worldview is simply the lens through which you view the world. The term was first coined by Immanuel Kant in his work, A Critique of Pure Reason, where Kant used it to describe one's, as he called it, outlook of the world. It was the, as he called it, And I don't speak German, but it was the Weltenschwang. Welt, word, and eschwang, perception. Literally, the perception of the world. The term became popular in German theology and scholarship really during the late 19th and 20th centuries to describe primarily the Christian perspective of the world. It was used by Christian theologians to describe the Christian worldview. But it is then used by, and and honestly it's used by theologians still to describe worldviews of others, although you'll find that most people would not even know or say that they have a worldview. That's actually how concerned they are with just the here and now, that they're only concerned with really what's in front of their face. They wouldn't say, I really have this view. They would maybe not deny it, but they don't speak in that terminology. But we will. Because I think we do need to take a step back, and we need to look at worldview and what that means. So to say it is your view of the world, it's not actually that helpful. Since a definition of the word that uses the word in the definition still leaves us with questions. You never define a word with the word. To say the worldview is your view of the world doesn't tell us much about it. What is a view, and what is a world? So we'll define worldview as this, a convergence of the thoughts and concepts of the world around us. Our worldview, then, is determined by what you know. A worldview is a collection of attitudes, values, stories, and expectations of what we know about the world around us. This collection then informs our every thought and action. This collection is the world in the term worldview. And we express or we act on this collection of attitudes, values, stories, and expectations about the world around us. Primarily, we act on it through our ethics, our religion, our philosophy, and our scientific beliefs. Now, I know I'm being very general here. But I think every worldview wants answers, really, to five general questions. The secular worldview, though, only concerned with the physical world around us, looks to the physical world and asks these five questions. And here's what they are: Is there a God? What is the supreme, final, and fundamental power in the in all reality? How do we know what we know? What is right and what is wrong? And what are those innate qualities of every human? But because the secular worldview is looking at the physical world for answers, it can only come up with temporal answers. And ultimately, it never arri- arrives at any objective answers. It only has theories and when those theories compete, a secular worldview tries to find space for both to exist. In fact, when I was in, uh, going to school, I had a professor who talked about how to read philosophy. It was when one of our first guys says: here's how you read philosophy. You read philosophy by just accepting what the philosopher is saying as true. That's how you read it. So when you're reading Kant, you just read it at face value, as if it is true, you absorb it. That was a challenge. Because Kant and David Hume and all these other guys would say things. Well, I'm I'm acting like I understood what they were saying. That was a challenge in and of itself, to understand really what they were saying. But they would say things that, no, I disagree with that. In fact, I did actually have an opinion that I don't think anybody actually knows what they were saying. And, uh, and, and I don't think they knew what they were saying. And I've experienced that myself. When I'll write something, I will wax eloquent, and then about a year later, I'll read it, and I'll say, I have no clue what I was saying. Sometimes it's the next day. But that's the secular worldview, is they will make space for everyone to be right. So when they ask, is there a God? Well, what is your truth? What is the supreme final and fundamental power in all reality? Well, what do you think? How do we know what we know? I don't know, how do you know? What is right and what is wrong? What's right and wrong to you, Mike? What are those innate qualities of every human? I don't know, we haven't known every human. There's no objectivity. It only has theories, and when those theories compete, They try to find a space for both to exist, and it can become chaotic very, very quickly. On the other other hand, a Christian worldview, though it provides answers to those questions, the same questions the secular worldview asks, it does not begin with asking questions that are already clearly answered by Scripture. For example, the Christian worldview does answer the question Is there a God? but it also finds that asking that question is a waste of time. Instead, a Christian worldview holds certain assumptions, or what we would call presuppositions, that enable it to get to the more substantial answers to the questions that all humanity really is asking. All humanity really asks only three questions. What every person really wants to know are three answers to three questions. And only the Christian worldview gives answers to these. These three questions are these. Where did I come from? Why am I here? And where am I going? Humanity asks those three questions. Every sailor I deal with has asked the question, Chaplain, why am I here? Now, they might think of it as an existential uh, existence on the USS Wasp at that given time and why they joined the Navy, but that is a microcosm of what they want to know is, why am I right here? When death happens in the military, the other question comes up is, where are we going? So the three questions everyone asks is, where did I come from, why am I here, and where am I going? While the secular worldview asks these questions and accepts subjective answers, the Christian worldview provides answers to these very objective questions. Now, I think I know what you're thinking. You are thinking that it's not one's worldview that answers those questions because the Bible has answered those questions. And you would be 100% correct. And that, though, is the de facto worldview. It's the Christian worldview, that the Bible answers all of our questions. It answers the questions about the existence of God. The Bible answers the questions about the supreme, final, and fundamental power in the of all reality. The Bible tells us the source of our knowledge. The Bible tells us what is right and what is wrong. And the Bible tells us all about human nature. This is all true. And we cannot forget, as we go along in this course, we will never subjugate the authority of the Word of God to anything else. We will not make the Bible subjugate to anything else. It is the authority. Let me ask you a question. How do you know the Word of God is authoritative? Anybody dare? To answer that question. What's that? It'll change your life. life. So, without hopefully not putting words in your mouth, experience. He's experienced the word of God as authoritative. How do we know the word of God is authoritative? If your answer is, well, because the Bible tells me it is, then I might retort with, On what authority does the Bible have to say that? And you would respond with, well, because God wrote it. Well, how do you know God exists? And you would say, because he's revealed himself to us. Well, how did he reveal himself to us? Well, through his word. How do you know the word of God is trustworthy? Because it's authoritative. How do you know it's authoritative? Prophecy's been fulfilled. So you're going to go by experience. We go though into very quickly into circular reasoning. The Bible, so some would say, you can't say the Bible is authoritative based upon it saying it is authoritative. Can you see that it goes into quickly into circles? This is called circular reasoning. Can something claim authority based on its own authority to claim authority? Now, I actually think that there is an argument that can be made that it actually can. But I don't want to rely on that and risk the circular reasoning attack. A better alternative is to apply critical thinking to the problem. You say, well, what in the world do you mean by critical thinking? There is a way to provide objective answers that does not subject the Bible to the wisdom of man, but rather demonstrates that divine wisdom is available to all who will receive it. But there is a process to that, and we're going to consider that process. Now, before we do that, we have introduced a new term, critical thinking. So let's define it. Now, there's a great deal of confusion about the meaning to this term, critical thinking. Most often, the term is confused with what is also known as cognitive thinking, which is important, but it's different. In fact, I watched an entire seminar designed specifically for teachers, and it was given by a very credible conservative Christian college. The seminar was titled, Building Critical Thinking into the Lesson. And for almost an hour, the instructor talked about cognitive thinking. But she called it critical thinking. You say, well, what in the world is the difference and why does it matter? It's the common mistake. The two are different. Cognitive thinking is the ability to think. Critical thinking is the ability to think well. Now, those are very simple differentiations. But it might help if we look at them separately for just a few minutes. We will consider cognitive thinking first. Cognitive thinking is a term referring to the mental processes involved in gaining knowledge and comprehension. These cognitive processes include thinking, knowing, remembering, judging, and problem solving. The term comes from the word cognition, which is a noun, it simply is the use of of the conscious mental processes. In other words, it's the ability to think. Now, I know we have the tendency to respond to someone's less than brilliant actions with this rhetorical question. What were you thinking? But we technically cannot accuse them of not thinking. Though we are tempted to do so, they actually were thinking. They just weren't thinking very well. Every human has the ability to think. The level of ability is different. My memory is bad, but it's not non-existent. I remembered to come today. I may not know a lot of things, but I know some things. And so that qualifies me to be able to think. There are times when my judgment is impaired. It's highly questionable. But I still have the ability to make judgments. Certainly psychology gives us, or at least it attempts to give us, better explanations for cognition. But we don't need psychology to tell us that humans know how to think. This is really what separates us from animals. It's called the ability to be rational. The ability to reason. Now, don't confuse those terms. Some people are unreasonable, and some people act irrationally. But we have used those as slang terms. They actually have real definitions. It's the ability to think, and that's what separates you from an animal. The question is, how well do we think? This brings us to critical thinking. A definition of critical thinking is this, the intellectually disciplined process, that's important words there, intellectually disciplined process of acting and skillfully conceptualizing, applying, analyzing, synthesizing, and or evaluating information gathered from or generated by observation, experience, reflection, reasoning, or communication, as a guide to belief and action. There's a lot of words there. So while cognitive thinking is the using of your conscious mental processes, critical thinking is using those processes to develop beliefs or actions. Yeah, you know how to think. That separates you from an animal. But what separates you from the rest of the humanity? To be able to do it well. To be sure. There are those who don't like the term critical thinking, not because they don't want to do it, but a definition of critical thinking is, I'm sorry, they don't like it because it's attributed to people like Socrates as part of the Socratic method, where probing questions are asked and answered for the purpose of stimulating someone's thinking. And some people don't like it, especially Christians, I don't like critical thinking because that's that that's that philosophy. And the, we just read a verse a couple minutes ago that said, don't let anybody spoil you through philosophy, so we don't, we don't listen to that Socrates guy. Others do not like the term because it's the foundation of Aristotle's logic and the use of the syllogism. And while we really detest the term, some really detest the term because of this guy named John Dewey, who was among the first to apply the term to the field of education. Now, in full disclosure, Dewey was an atheist, he was a socialist, he was a humanist, and he is, I think, single-handedly responsible for much of the wrong that we have in our public education system today. He, the seeds of, Germanism, of humanism that he planted have germinated into some very major problems. We like to go back and say, oh it was when they took prayer out of the public schools back in the 1960s. Those were the students under Dewey a lot earlier than when they became Supreme Court justices. But it was Dewey who in 1910 used the term, he called it reflective thinking. He defined critical thinking as an educational goal. Dewey wanted students to learn to think critically so that they could do two things. The first was so so that they could think, so they could link their curiosity, their imagination, and experimental inquiry to the scientific method. In other words, he wanted to focus a child's natural inquisitiveness to help them want to solve problems. He said, Children want to know stuff, so let's channel that and help them discover things. Secondly, he then believed that channeling the child's natural desire to learn towards problem solving. Not just let it go, but to channel it towards problem solving. It would develop better citizens in society because he was convinced that if you taught them to solve problems in school, they would then go into society and help solve the problems in society. Now, there's a little bit of truth to that. For example, it's the same principle. I detested math in high school. I thought it was a waste of time. I said I'm never going to use it. Not only have I used that more often than anything else in my life, from driving down the interstate and knowing how much I'm speeding, using a quick math problem there, your life is full of math, to also I just have found that when you take geometry and algebra and calculus and all these other math courses, it will discipline you. For other decision making things in your life, it helps you to think critically. That was what Dewey was saying. He simply put, he wanted to teach children not just to think and learn rote facts, but he wanted them to learn to think well. Now, to be sure, Dewey's goal was to develop thinkers who could think independently. But the problem with Dewey's pedagogy was that it was at times unbridled. Let the child just discover what they want to learn. The learner had no parameters and was free to develop beliefs and actions that were best for him. But he was a socialist. He wanted all this to better society. So I don't think we need to reject the term simply because of the baggage that potentially comes with those who advocated it or practice it, whether it be Socrates or Aristotle or Dewey. And while Dewey popularized critical thinking in education, I don't think we are forced to accept either his application of critical thinking or even his definition of it, nor do I think we have to compel ourselves to accept critical thinking as a product of the Renaissance the Reformation, classical philosophy, or even just Western civilization. It's not just something we've discovered here in our Western world that we can think critically. I would go so far as to say that critical thinking can be recognized through Scripture, both Old and New Testaments. For example, Isaiah, he says this, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. The prophet is giving a decision matrix. You do this, and you can have that. For us to process this, we have to have the ability to evaluate the information gathered. God says, let's be reasonable about this. Another example is the entire book of Ecclesiastes. Here Solomon employs all the criteria of critical thinking. Paul uses critical thinking throughout his epistles. When you see a phrase like, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound, he's skillfully conceptualizing, applying, analyzing, synthesizing, and evaluating evaluating information to teach us how we should act. You can't understand, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound, without analyzing and understanding the passages that came before it. Peter and John, throughout all their writings, demonstrate the importance of critical thinking. So critical thinking is not a brainchild of a humanist, do we? a philosophical Socrates, or a logical Aristotle. In fact, I like how John Locke, and we'll get to him later, he described employing biblical principles that may have also been used by those who are not Christians. Here's what Locke said. God has not been so sparing to men to make them barely two-legged creatures and then left it to Aristotle to make them rational. In other words, God just didn't make make a human, and then it was Aristotle who taught us how to think. That's not what happened. These may have studied the abilities of man, but they did not invent them. Man was able to think critically long before Socrates asked his questions, long before Aristotle developed his syllogisms, long before Dewey established his philosophy of education. And here's why. Because there's bedrocks of human intelligence like the three laws of logic that illustrate, if not outright state, in, that are outright stated in Scripture. For example, the law of non-contradiction says this: A cannot be B and not B at the same time and in the same sense. Let me slow that down. A cannot be B and not B at the same time and in the same sense. That's as old as the human intellect. Why? In fact, Balaam found out the hard way about the law of non contradiction. When he finally told Balak, he said, God is not a man that he should lie. In other words, God cannot be honest and dishonest at the same time. That's the law of non contradiction. That was written 1,000 years before Aristotle articulated the law. And the psalmist said in his haste, All men are liars. Thus, articulating the law of the excluded middle. If you have two cont- contradictory pro- propositions, one is true and one is false. You cannot have a statement that is both true and false at the same time. So when the psalmist said in his haste, all men are liars, he was saying verbatim that you are either a, if you are a man, you are a liar. There is no other option. And then there's the third law, of logic, that's the law of identity that states that everything that is itself cannot be something else. Isn't this what God said to Moses in Exodus 3:14? When Moses asked for the name of God, God said, I am that I am. You know what he was saying there? I am like myself. And I can be, I can be no other. And what he was saying is, I have existed from the beginning of time he was stating who he was and this is why critical thinking is so important it helps us see these things but it is being neglected and this is why this lecture contains the words the demise of critical thinking as Christians we are failing to take our God-given faculties and using proper application to solve problems We will let YouTube solve our problems. We will let social media tell us how to think. We are content to take shortcuts, to be lazy in our thinking. We're even willing to adopt the world's standards of discourse to argue our positions. If the world says it's science, we don't know what to do. And we say, okay, Well, if you said it's science? and they monopolize those terms while christians have not been thinking critically about many of these issues that we'll discuss we cannot give in to this demise we have to be able to exercise the process of thinking carefully about a subject or an idea without allowing feelings or opinions to affect us and as christians we're even more responsible to do so why because our minds have been redeemed We are not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We should be thinking differently. We should be thinking logically. We should be thinking coherently. We should be thinking objectively. We should be thinking spiritually. So how do we do that? How do we gather information and then properly and skillfully conceptualize, apply, analyze, synthesize, and evaluate that information in a God-honoring manner? And what is it that we are to observe experience, reflect on, and reason about so that our beliefs and actions glorify God? And then especially, what do we do if after critically thinking, we arrive at a conclusion completely different from another Christian when we are supposedly observing, experiencing, and reflecting, and re- reasoning about the same data? Let's attempt to answer those questions. So look again at the title of this series, Infallible Proofs. This title comes from a verse in the Acts of the Apostles. Do you remember it? In the prologue of the book, the author Luke references the gospel he wrote that bears his name and how that treatise was a record of all that Jesus had said and done until he ascended into heaven. Now, to emphasize that this Jesus, who had died and was raised again, was indeed alive, Luke draws attention to the fact that Jesus was seen after his resurrection, that he was seen after he had endured such incredible suffering. This is a very important point that Luke is making. He is very clear to write that Jesus was seen post-mortem. Luke does this by using the word passion. Jesus was seen after his passion. The word passion is an old word that means suffering. Perhaps you've heard of of a passion play at Easter depicting the Passion Week. That's the final week of Jesus' life. The Passion of the Christ was a movie by Mel Gibson that portrayed very graphically the physical suffering of Jesus. But Jesus didn't just suffer. He suffered the death of the cross. And it was after this great ordeal of crucifixion that he was seen alive. And to prove he was alive, what did he do? He showed himself alive by what luke calls many infallible proofs what were these proofs luke provides at least two of them first he says that jesus was seen of them 40 days so there is sight involved then luke says he spoke of these things concerning the kingdom of god so what is involved hearing The implication is that hearing now is involved. But another apostle gives us some even more insight. John relates to us the story of Thomas in John 20. You remember Thomas? He was absent the first time Jesus appeared to the disciples. And when he was told that Jesus was alive, he said, Except I shall see in his hands the prints of the nails, and put my finger in the prints of the nails, and and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Thomas wanted infallible proof. When Jesus did appear to Thomas, he told him, what did he say? Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. Thomas saw, he saw Jesus, he heard Jesus, and he touched Jesus. There are other stories where Jesus proved he was alive by relating to the physical senses. And I believe that is why the Apostle John writes in his first letter, we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, we have looked upon him, and our hands have handled the word of life. I think these are, at least in part, some of the infallible proofs that Luke is referring to in the book of Acts. Now notice I said, in part. We will look at other, what I think are other forms of infallible proofs later. But for now, let us just consider the infallible proofs that are built on what is called sensory data. We use our senses to gain knowledge. We taste, we touch, we smell, we hear, and we see. And when we exercise our senses, we are gathering data. So when the physical effects of the external world act on our senses, we collect this information and we're gonna call that sensory data or data gained using our senses. And when then we take this data and we begin to process it, we process it then by employing cognition. We really are just taking the raw information gathered and we think about it. We process it then through discernment, inference, judgment, and reasoning And this is how we produce knowledge. Now, much of what we know about this world is gained, at least in part, through how we sense it. Now, I know the beauty of my wife wife, because I have seen her. I know the pain of a burn because I have felt it. I know the sourness of a lemon because I have tasted it. All of this data is collected in my brain, and I process it through my ability to discern, infer, judge, or reason. I have the ability to make sound judgments, so I can process the knowledge of my wife's beauty through the judgment I know it to be true. Or I can know how to discern between extremes, and I know that hot is different from cold, that both extremes cause pain, and so I safely assume that extreme heat, the burn I have experienced, is due to the extreme heat, and thus extreme heat burns, and I should avoid that. I processed all that in my mind I'm brilliant I also have the ability to reason that every time I've eaten a lemon I have experienced a sour taste so I safely process in my mind that lemons are sour so is my wife beautiful are burns painful are lemons really sour yes yes and yes because I've experienced those But you might cry foul and say, hey, not so fast. And if your reasoning is that I should only make those statements as matters of opinion and not fact, you'd be right. It is my perception that I have a beautiful wife. It is my perception that heat burns and that lemons are sour. They may or may not be absolutely true, but they are true to me. That is my truth. But now we have a problem. Truth cannot be just true to me. For something to be true, it has to be true at all times and in all places under the same circumstances. Perception is not always reality. You may remember a word I used last year, epistemology. Epistemology is the study of truth, or more specifically, it is the study of what justifies something to be true and distinguishes it from opinion. This becomes very important when we begin to study scripture, especially when we read passages such as are recorded for us regarding the resurrection. Can the accounts of the writers be trusted? Or when we say, I know God is authority because I have seen him work in my life. If you've never experienced God working in your life, is he still authoritative? Yeah. I know that the authority of God's word because I've seen prophecies fulfilled. Which ones have you seen fulfilled? Were you there for all of (laughs) them? These are experiences. And whether you've experienced prophecy being fulfilled or heard about it or not, the Bible's still authoritative. So how do we know? How do we know it's true? Can we trust the accounts of the writers? In the case of the apostles, their sight, their hearing, and their touch all testified to the fact that Jesus was alive. And Luke says these proofs were infallible, that their senses could be trusted. And while we could take on the entire course studying what has become known as theories of knowledge, how do we know what we know, we are going to have to address some of it. We're not going to take an entire course to talk about knowledge, but we will talk about theories of knowledge, and we'll pick that up next week. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this opportunity to open your word, and you've told us that you're alive. Father, whether we believe that or not, it's true. But I think you've also not left us helpless where we just have to blindly step out and just accept it. I think you have also given us infallible proofs because you know we are human and we are men and women and we have minds that are not trustworthy. And so if we are relying simply on our own faith, We will be disappointed, but we have the faith of Christ. And so I pray that you'd help us to get to there next week. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.